Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. These are the words the psalmist penned down in chapter 119, verse 105. And the word that he talks about there is God's word. And tonight we're going to be talking about God's word in the context of can we prove what the Bible claims to be, and that is God-inspired. There's nearly 3,000 cases that we have where the Bible makes the statement that the word of the Lord, or the Lord said, so we can, without one single doubt, prove that the Bible at least claims to be God-inspired. And tonight's reading that we had from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, is sort of the capstone uh, verse that we can point to for that claim. It reads that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's a mighty claim to make. It says that all Scripture, every word in this book, is to be God-inspired. If a book is truly God-inspired, then it should be able to stand the test of time. Whatever comes its way, then it should be able to come out on top and, and prove that test to be right. Before we start looking at some of the evidence tonight, there's a, there's a question that I want to ask and, and do my best to answer. And the entire purpose of this lesson really hinges upon the answer to this question. That question is, why should I care that we have biblical evidence or evidence at all that supports the Bible's claim? I believe the Bible to be God-inspired, and, and the chances are you probably do too or not. So does it matter that we even have evidence? Is our faith not enough? I think the answer to that question is yes, we should care wholeheartedly. And the first reason I want to give tonight is that we, is that we have to teach. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, this is the Great Commission given to the apostles. I just want to highlight two pieces of these verses. Verse 19 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What do we teach them? Jesus said in verse 20, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded of you. So we, so we teach them all things, not some or part, but we teach them all things. There's a very important word I want us to look at, uh, look at in verse number 20, and that's the word command. He says, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded of you. Now that word command carries with it the idea of authority. So Christ was speaking here with authority. If we get the chance at some point in our lives, hopefully we will, we'll get to uh, sit down with a non-believer or maybe a fallen Christian, maybe a brother or sister in Christ that have, that have turned their back upon God. If we get that chance to sit with that person and talk to them, what do you think might be some of the very first things that we have to establish with that person before we can really begin to teach? Number one, I think we have to establish that there is a God. And number two, that we have his written, holy and divine word, our will and testament for us today. Once we have those things established, then we can be, uh, start to teach that person about Jesus and what he did for us. Hosea 2.6 declares that my people were destroyed for their lack of knowledge, and because they rejected knowledge, he will reject them. I can't. I can't put into words the importance of knowledge and how we should be armed with the knowledge of God, not just uh, for the reason for ourselves, but to be able to prove what we teach comes from the authority of God. I'm a, I, I, uh, I include myself when I say this because I'm usually a skeptic. I usually doubt things that are too good to be true. Um, but most of us here tonight are probably more like Doubting Thomas than we would like to admit. There's a fly on me. We are more like Doubting Thomas than we would like to admit. We like to see things or hear things or feel things to know that they're real. 
In Acts 17, verse 11, Paul commended the, the Bereans for going and searching those scriptures daily. They didn't take his word for it. And that still applies today, whether it's me or Brother Randy or, or anybody else in this pulpit. You have the responsibility as a Christian to go back home and open up your Bible to see the things that he said was true. You know, kids go through a phase where they ask the question, why? They want to know why this, why that? And then once you answer that question, their next question is why? But it's a good question. And likewise, if we have that opportunity to sit with a non-Christian or a non-believer and we teach them about Jesus, they're, they're likely going to ask the question why a lot. Which leads us to point number two. We have to be able to give an answer and defend what it is that we believe. In 1 Peter 3.15, I love this verse. It's one of my favorites. It says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is within us with meekness and with fear. Peter says, Be ready to give an answer always. So to those here tonight that are Christians, we at some point in our life confess that Jesus is the Son of God and we were baptized into Christ. We've pledged an allegiance and loyalty to Christ. And part of that responsibility being a Christian is to be able to give an answer for what we believe in. There are many times we find ourselves in conversations, whether it be at work or with our family, and it's often about religion. And you will no doubt get the question, why do you believe in blank? And in that blank, you can put whatever it is you want there. It doesn't really matter. Or why do you not believe in blank? And again, put whatever you want to in that blank. It doesn't really matter. We can have questions about baptism, about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, maybe about women's roles in the church. And these are all things that we should be ready to give a book, chapter, and verse for. But what about our youth? What about some of the questions that they face, whether it be in school or out just hanging out with their friends? What about the questions about homosexuality or abortion? These are all questions that Peter said be ready to give an answer for, get, to give an answer for what you believe. But even if we have that answer, if we can't prove that our answer comes from a source of authority, then our answer means nothing. It means nothing whatsoever to that person that we're talking to. In Philippians 1.16, Paul declares that he was put here for the defense of the, gospel, the, of the gospel. That's the NIV translation, and the King James Version renders that a little bit differently. Every single day the Bible is under attack by those who have no other goal than to, to, to simply discredit what it, what it claims to be. It is, as it were, if you can imagine, placed under the highest powered microscopes every single day by scientists and atheists who have no other goal than to find that one single mistake or one blemish. Because if, if what we have here today is truly from God, then it has to be perfect. One single mistake can discredit this entire book. There's no doubt of that. What if I was out today or tonight? What if I was out spreading rumors about Brother Eddie or somebody else in the congregation here, speaking the most awful lies about that person, things that, things that you knew were to be true or uh, to be untrue? I don't think it would take that long that I would get a phone call or maybe a personal visit saying, Adam, what are you doing? This is wrong. You are spreading rumors, and, and these things are not right. Do you think our reaction for God and for his word should be any less? Paul says he was put here for the defense, and so should we. Now tonight, there's three series of, of different types of evidence that I want to cover. I thought it would be wise to spend my time 
giving a small uh, giving a small sample of of each type of evidence that I that I feel is important um, instead of just focusing it all on one. And the first one I want to cover is just simple Bible facts. I've subtitled this common sense logic. When we look at these Bible facts that we know to be true, if we just take these at face value, it seems to me that it would be common sense that there's no man or group of men that could write this book, that, that, that could write this piece of work that is so perfect. Fact number one, the Bible is not a single book. It's a collection of 66 very different individual books. These 66 books were written by about 40 different authors, 40 different people took part in writing this book. And of those 40 people, they came from extremely different backgrounds. Some were shepherds, some were kings, some were priests and doctors, and the, and, and the list goes on and on. And most of these authors did not personally know each other. Their paths never crossed in their lifetime. And beyond that, they lived in total on three different continents, three different uh, locations completely. The Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years, well over 1,000 years from the time they started writing the Bible until the very last word was penned down, well over 1,000 years. These men, these, these 40 different authors, wrote in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Now, we look at all these differences. We look at how many things that are different about the Bible, all these facts but it has one common theme, and that's the fall and the redemption of man, and they all point toward Jesus Christ. Number six, last but certainly not least, this one could be, it is pretty subjective, uh, but once we see some of the evidence, I think the honest person will, uh, will concede that it is perfect. But the Bible contains no historical errors and no mistakes or contradictions whatsoever. It is absolutely perfect. I'll admit that I'm a Harry Potter fan. I like the books. I like the movies. I think it's just a neat series. Harry Potter is a series of books. It's, uh, it's, it's seven books written by, the, uh, by an author named J.K. Rowling. And best I could tell, it took her 13 years to write these books. They're all fiction. It's just a, just a good story. They're extremely successful. But if, but if you look at the movies and the books, there are numerous proven mistakes in every book with different scenes with the plot and, and the character development. We have one lady who wrote a series of seven books over 13 years, and she couldn't get it 100% perfect. But as we're going to see, we have a book uh, made of 66 books written by 40 different authors that is absolutely, purely perfect. To say that it has no mistakes whatsoever leads us into our next point, evidence number two, and that's prophecy. Prophecy is probably one of the greatest, most infallible proofs that we have that the Bible is from God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we see the claim here that it wasn't men that just pinned these words down. Men pinned these words down as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, that is to say God. It's also one of those things that's probably the most overlooked or neglected. And it, and it points back to one of the facts that I just mentioned. We take for granted that we have this one single book. And we forget that it's a collection of 66 different books. We can read a passage in Psalms or in, or in Isaiah or any other of the prophecies and just turn a few pages. 
But in these pages could be well over a thousand years different. This person that wrote this and the person that wrote this are very different people, writing in different languages. But the person that wrote this made a prophecy that was fulfilled exactly as it should have been. What does that say today about self-claimed prophets, you think? We have people on TV and on the Internet who will tell your future all day long for a few dollars. They may make dozens or hundreds of guesses, and if they get one of those right, it seems like that validates their claim. True prophecy, though, from the, from the Bible and from God, it's clear, it's concise and specific, and it's perfect every single time, without doubt. I only have three here that I want to cover today, just for the sake of time. The first one here is the birth of Christ. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We see in Matthew 1.23 that he affirms that this prophecy will be fulfilled. And in later detail, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 and 31 we are told that Jesus was conceived uh, by a virgin, the Virgin Mary. And it's in great detail, but that was 900 years, or you know, give or take a few years, 900 years prior to that, it was prophesied that it would come true. There's no possible way man could have pinned that down and just happened to get it right. There's no possible way. Number two, Christ was despised and rejected of man. In Isaiah 53.3, we read that he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, in the four Gospels, especially John chapter 1.11 and in Luke 23, verse 18, nearly a thousand years later, we see that Christ truly was rejected of man. His own kind didn't receive him. What about the crucifixion events? This one could not be any more accurate than, uh, than you want it to be. In Psalms 22, 1, it, it declares, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we have pinpoint accuracy again 900 years later. In Matthew 27, 46, our Lord declared with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What we have here in front of us, the Bible, truly is perfect. Jeremiah 28, verse 8 says that when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then the prophet, then shall the prophet be known. And listen to this, that the Lord hath truly sent him. It wasn't that a prophet made his own prophecy. It says that when the prophet shall, shall be known, that the Lord hath truly sent him. Now we've only covered three examples of prophecy, but there are over 300 that just point to Christ alone. There, there are many more than that, but just, the, but just those that point to Christ, there's well over 300 prophecies. And they prophesy how he will come to this earth as the redeeming Savior, that he will suffer grief and be rejected of man, that, he'll, that, that, that he will be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, that his hands and his feet will be pierced, but not yet one, one bone will be broken, and that eventually he will be ascended into heaven. The Bible details this out for us in, in perfect, perfect specific detail, and every single one of these were fulfilled perfectly thousands of years later. The fact that the Bible is that pinpoint accurate will play a very important role in our next section, which is evidence number three, scientific foreknowledge. This is one of my favorite sections. 
just because we can sort of relate to it more, more personally today. It's a, it's a misconception that science and the Bible um, don't go hand in hand, that they constantly rub against each other. But in all honesty, science every day proves the Bible to be accurate, and the Bible proves science. They do work perfectly together. The first one I want to look at is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 15. This is where God instructed Noah to build an ark. And in those instructions, he was extremely specific in what he wanted. He said, you build that ark 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Those are the measurements in today's terms. But that measurement equates to 30 by 5 by 3. 30 by 5 by 3. During World War II, the Navy built boats that were later nicknamed the Ugly Duckling because they were built to carry these enormous amounts of cargo. They were, they were built to be seaworthy, and just carry cargo was their primary goal. And they weren't fast, so they were named the Ugly Duckling. But the ratio that these engineers employed to build that ship, 30 by 5 by 3. It's amazing how in the world did Noah know how to build that ark. He wasn't a shipbuilder. God instructed him to. Nearly 3,000 years earlier than we built the ship, God told Noah how to do it. Leviticus 17:11. For the life of a creature is in the blood. This may seem like common sense to us today because we know that a creature cannot live without blood. We know that the blood carries enormous amounts of oxygen through our system, keeping us alive. But this wasn't proven until 1616, William Harvey, who was a physician, he detailed the properties of blood and talked about how the blood circulates through our heart. This is sort of a relatively new fact, considering that this nation's first president, George Washington, was bled to death by his doctors. You see, back then, they thought blood contained evil vapors if you were sick or ill, so they thought if, if they could bleed part of your blood out, that, that, that it would heal you. They ended up killing our, our nation's first president because of that. And that was, again, about 3,000 years earlier, God stated the life of a creature is in the blood. Leviticus 17:15. God gave the command that when an animal is to die of natural causes, that you are to consider it to be unclean and not eat of it. Now today we know that in local, state, and federal government and health procedures that you can't take an animal that's died of natural causes to the slaughterhouse. What if that animal had died of rabies or any other uh, disease that, that, that we just didn't know about? You see, God knew the risk involved with eating that animal. He said, you are to consider it to be unclean and do not eat it. Deuteronomy 23, chapter 12 Chapter 23, verses 12 through 13. This one is not one of those topics for the, for the dinner table, but God commanded Moses here and the Israelites to go away and you dig a hole to bury your human waste products. And that one really seems like common sense to us today because we live in a nation that's, that's all about hygiene and, being, and uh, being sanitary. But back in the Middle Ages, across Europe, black plague swept over that 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 nation twice, killing more than 13 million people. Because back then it was common practice for people to just throw their waste out into the streets and, and the uh, back alleys. And you had rats and fleas and ticks that would, that would feast on these, on these different human waste products and they would spread that bacteria across the country. God said, you go and you dig a hole and you bury it. He knew, again, the risk involved in this and that was about 2,700 years earlier 
that God stated this. And the last one for scientific foreknowledge. Genesis 17, verse 12. This is where God commanded Abraham to circumcise boys on the eighth day. Now, when Levi was born, we were told that he would be circumcised there at the hospital, which is usually about day two or day three after they're born. So that's what we expected. But before we left, they were, they were a little bit concerned with his weight, so they wanted us to, to wait and reschedule that appointment to have him circumcised at a later date. So we called and made the appointment, and it just so happened that it fell on day number eight. So I was curious, why did God command Abraham to wait until day number eight to do circumcision? Does it really matter? Does it matter if it's day two, three, four, five, or six? There was a study done in the 1930s on baby chicks about blood clotting. And it was in that study that we learned about elements of uh, vitamin K and prothrombin. These are the two elements that our body uses to clot blood. The best I could tell, that study showed that it's only days five through seven that our bodies have adequate amounts of vitamin K and, and prothrombin uh, for blood clotting. So again, why day number eight? Well, it's days five through seven that it's produced, but it's on day eight, and it's the only day in that person's life, considering all things else to be normal, the only day in that child's life that it'll be elevated above 100%. You see, God knew that on day eight, it was the perfect day for your blood to clot. There's no possible way Abraham knew this. We didn't know it until the 1930s. To me, that's just amazing when I read that type of scientific foreknowledge that is in the Bible. Now, that list could go on and on and on. But I want to cover quickly, does the Bible contain mistakes? This is a very important question, and it warrants a whole series by itself because there are numerous, numerous examples that we could give about uh, proclaimed Bible mistakes that, that, that they're, they're just not real. I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying this. There's not one legitimate proven mistake or contradiction found in the Bible. I want you to keep in mind that the Bible that we have today is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. We don't have the 100% pure original text written by those first century men. What we have is a copy of the Bible written by scribes. But these scribes were extremely diligent in what they copied down. They went letter for letter, word for word, line by line. And if they found one single mistake in their copy, they would tear it up and throw it away. And the kind of mistakes that you and I think of being in the Bible are mistakes where an A should have been an an, or an an should have been a the. It's not mistakes that truly alter the context of what we're talking about. We, we today currently have over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. That far exceeds any other historical book that, that, are, that are taught in high school and college that we have today, like the Odyssey or like the Iliad. They're... There are 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. We, we can be sure that we have the right copy of the Bible. The example I want to talk to you about tonight is the one of William Mitchell Ramsey. Ramsey was a professor of classical archaeology at the University of Oxford. And he was also a well-known New Testament scholar. Ramsey used his scientific skills, and he set out to disprove the Bible. That was his one goal in this project. In this attempt, he chose the book of Acts. There couldn't have been a more perfect book to choose 
because in the book of Acts, Luke mentions 32 countries, nine Mediterranean islands, and 54 cities. If there was ever going to be a book that made mistakes about geography, this was going to be the book. There's no doubt about it. So Ramsey took these journeys. He went into Greece in modern-day Turkey, and he became a well-known expert and scholar in Paul's missionary journeys. Now, when I was reading this, I was begging the question, what did he find? What did he find? What did he report back after all these missionary, or after all of these journeys on, on this project? He came back and he wrote a book entitled The Bearing of Recent Discovery of the Trustworthiness of the New Testament. And I want to read two paragraphs taken directly from this book. Ramsey says, The present writer takes the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment, provided always that the critic knows the subject and does not go beyond the limits of science and justice. And later he says, Acts may be quoted as a trustworthy historical authority. Luke is a historian of the first rank. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at great length. While he touches lightly or omits entirely much of that valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed along the very greatest of historians. This should come at no surprise to us whatsoever because what we have today is truly the written word of God. It is not of man. I want to highlight part of these paragraphs for you. It says, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. Acts may be quoted as a trustworthy historical authority. Luke is a historian of the first rank. In short, this author should be placed along the very greatest of historians. What Ramsey is quick to do, though, is give Luke credit for being one of the greatest historians. But the fact is, the reason the words that we find in Acts can stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment and then come out on top is because those words are from God. They're not from Luke. Luke was moved by the Holy Ghost as he wrote these words down. After reading this and doing all the studying for this of the different types of evidence, I can certainly say that my faith was increased and it solidified the belief that I already had that we had the Word of God. I want to conclude tonight's lesson in a similar way and say that I hope that some of this sampling of evidence that I provided has increased your faith. I hope that it solidified your beliefs that we do have the Word of God. When we recognize that we do have the Bible and that it is from God, we recognize the fact that there is an authority that's much greater than, than, than us. We recognize that there's a purpose in this life that far exceeds self-satisfaction or what we want to do. To those that are a non-believer or to those that are a Christian who have fallen away, it should be a great comfort to know that we have the Bible and to know that there is a will and testament for you. If you do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you can confess that before men and be baptized into Christ. But for those that are Christians that have fallen away, one of the greatest blessings that we possibly have that's in Christ Jesus is the blessing of forgiveness. And it's only in Him that we find that, that forgiveness. If you do ask for forgiveness and you repent of your sins, God is a just God. 
He will walk your slate, your, your slate clean, and he will make you white as snow. And tonight here we have elders that will be more than happy to talk to you and to pray on your behalf. If either of these situations uh, describe you, please come forward now as we stand and sing.